0: Well, good morning, again, everyone. Welcome to Grace Bible Fellowship. Uh, go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter six. Today, we're going to look at verse ten of Matthew six, but let's just go ahead and uh, actually, let's even start. I want to read verse one, and uh, and then starting again in verse five. So. Verse one, Matthew 6, verse 1 says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Verse 2, Jesus talks about giving to the needy and how we're to not, not to do that like the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, but we're to give in secret. And then in verse 4, He says, When you pray... as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus, so far in this uh, amazing sermon, has been teaching His disciples about the kind of people who will enter the kingdom of heaven in order to enter the kingdom, there, there must be righteousness. And we've been kind of talking about this over and over through this sermon, but there must be righteousness. A, a disciple of Christ is a transformed person. And so if there's no transformation, there's no heavenly entrance. If there's no righteousness, then you are not a disciple of Jesus Christ. But if you are a disciple, you will practice righteousness. Like we saw in verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness. Literally, beware of, of doing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. A true disciple is one who does righteousness, and they do it to please their Father in heaven. We don't do righteous deeds in order that, that, that people may see us, but we, we, we don't do it, We sorry, we, we don't do it in order that people may see us, but we, we also don't do it in order that, uh, in order that we would earn our salvation in some way, or in, in order that, that God may be our Father. We do righteousness as saved people. God is already our Father, and because He's our Father, we do things and we practice righteousness because we want to please God, not to earn His salvation or to earn His favor, but just because of thankfulness and gratefulness and because of the transformation that He has accomplished in our lives in the new birth. He has saved us by grace, therefore we make it our aim to please Him. And we've learned that there's a there's to be a sincerity to our practice. We are not to be like the hypocrites. We are, we're not to be like those who pray to make a show or who, who give in order to receive praise from men. We pray to our Father who is in heaven. We pray in secret to our Father who is with us, even in secret. There's a, a genuineness about our prayer. And our primary prayer, the sincere desire of our hearts is for His name to be hallowed. That's what we looked at last time. The, the sincere desire of our hearts is for God to be glorified. We want God to be honored. We want His fame to spread, and we long for Him to be glorified above all. Jesus is teaching us to pray first and foremost that God would be glorified. Before we ask for food, listen, before we ask for food, even before we ask for forgiveness, we ask for fame that is God's fame. The foundation of our righteousness is is this desire for God's fame, for His glory. But now, as we kind of dig deeper into this prayer and kind of move down into verse 10, we need to ask, well, how? How will God's name be hallowed? And also with that, we also ask, when and where will God's name be hallowed? And what we specifically sorry, what, uh, a question, what, what specifically do we want? Or, or what are we actually asking for when we say, hallowed be your name? Another way to ask this question is to ask, what is the means by which God's name will be hallowed on earth as it is in heaven? And our text, verse 10, shows the, the two primary means by which God's name will be hallowed the two primary means. The first one, your kingdom come, looks to the future. And it, it asks God's, God to bring about his kingdom, his reign. This is a request to, to bring the last day when all things will be subjected under Christ and God will be all in all. That's what we're asking when we ask his kingdom to come. And the second request looks kind of more at the present. The first one is kind of a future thing. We're looking to God to do something in the future. The second request, your will be done, looks more at the present, and it's asking for God's will to be done here and now. Romans 12.2 calls this the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So when we pray, hallowed be your name, we're 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 looking ahead, asking God to be glorified by bringing in the end when His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But we are also asking for the, the present, that, that until that day, God's will would be done now. And so I've divided the text very obviously into two parts. I called it here, two requests that, for God's glory and our good. Two requests for God's glory and our good. The first one is pray for God's kingdom to come. And number two, pray for God's will to be done. These are the two things Jesus teaches us to pray. Number one, for God's kingdom to come. And number two, for God's will to be done. And under each of these requests, we're going to just ask a couple of simple questions. We're going to ask, what is this request? What What are we asking? What is the kingdom? And what is... God's will. And then we'll ask, how does this request glorify God? And then we'll ask, how does it benefit us? And that final question, how does it benefit us? It's not meant to to take the focus off God's glory, but the idea is for us to consider the effect that praying such a prayer should have on us. When we pray, it should also affect us and and change us and transform us. And so we're kind of looking at how does this apply to us? And remember that God's glory and our good, those two things are connected because we are connected to God and we bear His name in this world. And so our good and God's glory are really, in in a sense, one and the same. And remember, as we look at this, that, that these prayers for God's glory, for the kingdom to come and for God's will to be done, these are to be the sincere desires of our hearts. And that means we need to actually want these things to happen on earth, beginning with our own lives. And so let's look at this then. Number one, let's look at pray for God's kingdom to come. And again, in verse 10, it just simply says, your kingdom come. And the question that immediately comes to mind is, what is this kingdom? What is the kingdom of heaven? What is the kingdom of God? What are we asking for here? And already we are into a debate that has existed in the church since at least the time of Augustine 350 to about 430 AD. What is the kingdom of God? Now I've taught on the kingdom before, and we'll probably do it again. And every time I've taught on this, I I kind of get some feedback like I just still have no idea what you're talking about, and uh and so I'm trying to make this simple. I'm trying to make this as clear as I can. These are some complicated things, but I, if you wanted, you could kind of go back to a message that we looked at when I when I preached through Matthew chapter three, and if you just flip back in your Bible a few pages, look at Matthew three two. It says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so if you go back to that message in Matthew 3 and verse 2, there was a, a message that we did just on the kingdom and we really spent a lot of time looking at the Old Testament. But that same message that John the Baptist preached in Matthew 3 two, our Lord preached as well, starting in verse 17, look at, uh, of chapter 4, look at Matthew 4 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so this is really important for us to understand. Now, let's just think about a kingdom first of all. What is a kingdom? Now, usually in a kingdom, there's three elements. There's, there's usually three elements. There's number one, a ruler, some, some form of king, some sort of leader, some kind of a ruler. Then number two, there's a realm over which that ruler rules. There's a, a territory, an area that they, they rule over. And then number three, there's always a, a people or subjects of the realm that the ruler uh, rules over there. there's subjects who, who serve that ruler in some capacity. And so you've got a ruler, a realm, and a, a group of subjects. And when it comes to the kingdom of God, we, we know obviously that God is the ruler. Also, Christ is connected with this. He is the king and, and this is his kingdom. And so the question is, where is the realm and who are the subjects, and again, I want to try to simplify this as much as I can, and um, I, you know, it's difficult for me to do this, and so I, I hope you can stick with me. Just try to try to be with me today. Uh, I, I do think that this will be helpful and practical for you, but and, and just just to kind of encourage you, the first few times that I started hearing about these kind of things, I was very confused, and it took me a number of times as well, but. When we think about the kingdom and what is this kingdom and who are the subjects and what is the realm, there's there's kind of at least two views, and the first one is, is this: some people regard this kingdom as a a spiritual kingdom, and the subjects of the kingdom are believers who submit to the king, and so the ruler is God. Under this view, the realm is the hearts and lives of men. And the, who are, and the, and the subjects or, or the people are believers. And so God is ruling in, in this territory of the hearts of men who are believers. And, and this view, this kind of spiritual kingdom view is, is largely based on the New Testament. And it focuses on what we could call the present reality of the kingdom. Now this view, fits within what is called amillennialism. millennialism. Maybe you've heard of all millennialism. Uh, all millennial eschatology is the view that, that there will be no millennium, or there'll be no reign of Christ, or that uh, another way to say this is that, there, that we are in the millennium right now. Remember the, the, the millennium is a thousand years. Uh, that a millennium is a thousand years, and so when we talk about the millennium, we're really talking about the thousand year reign of Christ on earth. And so when we say that we are all millennial, that means we don't, don't believe that there's going to be a thousand year reign of Christ on earth. The, the prefix ah means no or not. And so all millennialism says there's not going to be a thousand year reign of Christ. That the only thing that we're expecting is the second coming. All millennium believes there's, there's no thousand year reign of Christ on earth. And and really, it's not quite fair to say they believe in no millennium because they actually believe that we are in the millennium now and that God is ruling in the hearts of his people now here on earth and then comes the second coming and, and then it's, it's the end. So right now, the, the kingdom is a, a spiritual reality in the hearts and lives of believers, this view that the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven is a spiritual kingdom, it, it also fits within what they call post-millennialism. Post-millennial eschatology. Post means after. So if you, if you want to understand post-millennialism, the idea is that, that after a millennium, after a Thousand year reign, but actually in postmillennialism, they don't actually believe it's going to be a thousand years. So in postmillennialism, it's it's after a a great time on the earth, after a, a kind of a, a an increasingly golden age of time, then Christ will come, and so after the millennium, there's going to be this this coming of Christ, the second coming. Postmillennial and amillennial are very closely related. They they both believe that there's the spiritual reign of God and Christ in the hearts of believers now. But postmillennialism's is different because they think that there's going to be the, this this reign of Christ in the hearts of people is going to kind of spread over the whole earth, and there's going to be this golden age, and then then Christ is going to come after everything gets really really good. And so the the spiritual kingdom in in postmillennialism is going to permeate all of life and society and then Christ is going to come. So this we're looking at this spiritual kingdom view and and as we look at this view now it kind of gets a little bit surprising here if you're still with me but somewhat surprisingly Even some premillennial people also talk about the kingdom in this same kind of a spiritual kingdom way. And they speak about the kingdom as a a spiritual reality now. But if you are premillennial, you also still believe in a literal earthly reign of Christ for a thousand years before the end. And so when we think about premillennialism, pre means before, before. Millennium still means a thousand year reign, and so before the second coming of Jesus Christ, sorry, I said that totally wrong. Uh, before, pre, before, or this, let me say it, let me just start totally fresh. The second coming of Christ is before the millennial reign. Okay. So the idea of premillennialism, Christ has to come. He comes before the millennium. He starts the millennium. He, he comes as the king in the second coming and establishes his kingdom on the earth. And so that's the premillennial view. But, but some premillennialists will also kind of talk about the fact that there's, there's something about the kingdom that's spiritual and that it's happening now. And to to kind of show you this a little bit, let's let's go over to Colossians chapter 1. So, question we're asking, what is the kingdom? I'm I'm kind of presenting this view that there's a a spiritual Reality to the kingdom that the 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 ruler is God is, is it where is this rule is it a, a literal earthly reign of Christ for a thousand years uh, that comes right after the return of Christ or is is this kingdom simply just a, a spiritual reality that's that happens in the hearts and lives of believers and if you look at Colossians one and verse thirteen it it could seem like that there's just this spiritual aspect of the kingdom. And so look at Colossians 1.13. He, that is the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so Colossians 1 tells us that we've been transferred to a kingdom, And it's the kingdom of the Father's beloved Son. It's the Son's kingdom. And in the Son, we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. And those are spiritual things. Now, I want you to go back to Matthew, and I want you to go to Matthew 13, And I, I can't, obviously I can't do this today, but the, all of the parables of Matthew 13 talk about the kingdom, and for the most part, they, they talk about, or at least parts of them talk about this, the present reality of the kingdom. And the, the kingdom is connected to the preaching of the gospel, just like we see in Colossians where the kingdom is tied to the redemption and the forgiveness of our sins, and so in the parable of the sower for example and if you look at verse 19 the seed in Matthew 13:19 the seed of uh, 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 the seed of the sower is called the word of the kingdom when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it and so on so the the word of the kingdom and really what that is is the the message of the gospel and in that parable people either receive that word and they're saved or they reject or ignore that word and they are lost and what I want you to see is that the the word of the kingdom then is closely tied to the gospel now as we just kind of look at that I'm assuming you understand and know the parable of the sower but the sower goes to sow seed and some people respond some people don't respond those who respond are saved those who don't respond it turns out are lost. And so the word of the kingdom and the message of the gospel are very closely connected. And what that means is that there is, as we could say, there is a, a present aspect of the kingdom. And in fact, Paul could summarize his ministry this way. Let me just read some verses from Acts chapter 20. And this might even surprise you to see this kind of language here about the kingdom. But Acts chapter 20 verse 25. And now behold, Paul is speaking here. He says, and now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. And so Paul could summarize his gospel ministry that delivered him from the blood of all men as preaching the kingdom. Or Acts chapter 28 verse 23 says this, And when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning until evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And then in verse 30 of Acts 28, he lived there, and this is again still Paul, they lived there two whole years at his own expense, And welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And so you should hopefully still be in Matthew. And I I want you to look at Matthew 36. But just to kind of summarize, Paul's gospel ministry could be called a, a proclaiming, a preaching of the kingdom of God. And so there's a, a kingdom message that involves a, a transfer of one out of Satan's kingdom into the kingdom of God and of Christ. It's a saving message, and it's one that we are to proclaim as a church. And so if you look at Matthew 13:36, 36, uh, he left the crowds, he went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field, so they want an explanation of a, a parable that Jesus had just taught them in Matthew 13. And uh, in verse 37, he, that's Jesus answered, he says, "'The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil.'" let him hear. And so in the world, uh, the son of man, he sows sons of the kingdom, whereas the devil sows sons of the evil one. And so there's these sons of the kingdom and there's these sons of the evil one that are in the world. And at the end of the age, Jesus will return with his angels and they will gather out of the kingdom the wicked, or we might say the unbelievers. And so at the end of the age, Jesus is going to return according to this parable explanation. He's going to return with his angels and they're going to kind of separate the peoples and they're going to gather the wicked and the wicked will go to hell. And then in verse 43, and then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Now all of, all of that to say that there there is a sense I believe in, in which we can say that the kingdom is a present spiritual reality because when we preach the gospel people become like we just saw sons of the kingdom and they they in a sense enter that kingdom they they be they enter into the kingdom of heaven they are now citizens of the kingdom but to say that the kingdom is here, I believe, that's, I believe that's wrong. Most of the verses that talk about the kingdom are actually future and they're talking about an earthly reality. Even in the prayer that we pray, it's your kingdom come, but on earth as it is in heaven also applies to the kingdom. We're asking for the kingdom to come on earth. And in fact, even just that language, I don't remember if I'm going to say this later or not in my notes, but when we pray your kingdom come, we're actually asking for something that isn't to come and, and, and be on the earth, right? So we're, we're asking for something that isn't to be. We're not praying for something that already is. But I want you to go now to Matthew chapter 19, and we're, we're going to start to see, uh, the literal aspects of the kingdom. That and the reason why I would say, there, there is although there's a present element of the kingdom, we, we can't say that it's entirely or only a spiritual reality. So look at Matthew 19 and verse 28. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the w- new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, You who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So it's in the new world, or literally it's in the regeneration, that the Lord here says that he's gonna sit on his glorious throne. And his disciples, the, the twelve, as it were, the, the twelve are gonna, are gonna also sit on thrones judging or ruling over Israel. And so follow this. If we think about the three aspects of the kingdom, according to this verse, Jesus is the king. The realm, according to this, is Israel and the subjects are Israelites. He's going to be the, the twelve are going to be judging with Jesus the twelve tribes of Israel. So Jesus is the king. The realm is Israel. The subjects are Israelites. Now, right now, Jesus sits at the right hand of God and he sits on his father's throne. But this throne from Matthew 19 speaks of a throne on earth. This is called his glorious throne. This verse is is not speaking about a throne in people's hearts. It's speaking about a throne in Israel. And of course, this hasn't happened yet, what we see in Matthew 19 and verse 28. These uh, disciples have never sat on the throne judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This comes, this happens in the regeneration, in the new world when the earth is renewed. Now go to Matthew 25. I think we're just a few more places. I want you to see this. Matthew 25 and look at verse 31. Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory... Note that word when, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him. Now that hasn't happened yet, right? We haven't, the Son of Man hasn't come with all the angels. It says, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and He will place the sheep on His right but the goat's on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And so we ask then, just looking at that verse, when will the Son of Man sit on his glorious throne? And note that this is the same throne, the same wording you mentioned in Matthew 28. When is this going to happen? Notice it says, When he comes in his glory with his angels. And then in verse 34, look at the thir- verse 34 again. It says, then, right after this coming, after this separation, then the king will say, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. And so the kingdom is a future reality, even though we can become sons of that kingdom now. Okay, you following me on, on that? Hopefully you're, you're kind of following me. The sun, the, the kingdom is a, a future reality. It's an earthly kingdom. It's a, a reign of, of Christ in Israel. And, and we find out from other scriptures that it really is a reign of Christ from Israel over the entire world. But I just want to show you one Old Testament passage, and I can't remember if we would have looked at this before, but go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel seven and we'll start reading at verse ten. Second Samuel seven ten. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. Now I, I should just stop here and say this is from the Davidic covenant. This is God speaking to David about what God is going to do in the future. And so there's, you know, remember David wanted to build uh, Yahweh a house. Yahweh said, no, you're not going to build me a house. I'm actually going to build you a house. And so verse 10 again, I will appoint a, a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rods of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And then verse 17, in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now, this little prophecy that we call the Davidic covenant, it kind of has a, a twofold thing. The, the, there's, a, there's a promise. To David and his offspring about a, an offspring who's gonna reign forever over a kingdom. And of course, that offspring we know is the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the ruler, the king, the, the Messiah of Israel. But there's also in this, there's kind of some, some talking about the whole Davidic line until that, that offspring. And that's where we kind of see that if he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men. We, we recognize that some of David's offspring are gonna be sinful and sin, and, and they are not the ultimate promised seed. But even though they sin, what God is promising to David is that his steadfast love will not depart and his kingdom promise will not fail, no matter what your descendants do after you. But there's this looking towards the future where we see this ultimate son, That's gonna come from David's line and he is gonna reign forever over a kingdom and that is never gonna stop. And so this forever a kingdom, this forever kingdom that was promised to David has not yet been accomplished. And so if you believe in a, a spiritual only kind of kingdom view, the question for you is, what do you do with a passage like this? What do you do about this promise to David that on his throne, on David's throne, there's going to be this eternal reign? And of course, this eternal reign hasn't happened. And so kind of in light of all of, of Scripture, we have this idea that's presented to us through the through the thread of Scripture that there there must be a reign by the last Adam... The Lord Jesus Christ in the same realm where the first Adam failed, right? Where, where Adam failed to have dominion over the earth, Jesus Christ will one day succeed and will rule this, this kingdom, which was promised really to Abraham, to David, and really all through the Old Testament. And so there's going to be an earthly reign of Christ over Israel and, and the world. And that's going to happen after he returns, or it's going to happen when he returns. And then after that reign is the end and the eternal state. And so what I would kind of say just in in some summary statements on, on this whole thing is that you can't have the kingdom without the king. Nor can you change the realm from earth to the hearts of men or from, from this physical world to a spiritual world. What, what God promised for the physical world will be fulfilled literally. What God promised Abraham, David, and the prophets must be fulfilled. And if you think about it like this, just like in the first coming of Christ, all the prophecies were fulfilled literally so in the second coming of Christ, all the prophecies that are given about that will be fulfilled literally. Now think about it again. If if we pray, your kingdom come, we have to acknowledge, or we are acknowledging in some sense that the kingdom is not here. When we say come, we're, we're acknowledging that it's not here and we want it to come. Now in the parables, Jesus does teach that, that the kingdom will spread or literally it will leaven. And he also teaches that it will grow like a, a mustard tree. But but here we're to pray, he doesn't say for growth, he doesn't say for spread, but he just prays that it would come. Again, in other words, the kingdom is not here and we pray for its coming, which is to say, and, and really this is true regardless of your interpretation of the kingdom, we are to pray here in, in Matthew 6.10, we are to pray for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're commanded to pray that Christ the King would come and establish His kingdom. Now, if you take the kingdom as a spiritual reality and not as a literal, physical rule of Christ over the earth, there's kind of two problems I, I think that you have. The first one is you have a problem with Jesus using the the verb come. You see, because you're praying for something to come that is supposedly already here, right? And now I've, I've already said that, but that's kind of the idea. If If you're praying for something to come that's already here, I don't think that makes good sense. And secondly... If if you have this spiritual view of the kingdom, it's hard to make good sense of John the Baptist and Jesus saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of heaven is near. You see, if the kingdom was or is a spiritual reign in the hearts of true believers, in what sense was it Near? Because the Jews always saw a spiritual kingdom in that sense. There was always a spiritual kingdom in the hearts and lives of true believing Jews all through history. There was always a remnant among them that that had God ruling in their hearts. And so what sense would it make for Jesus to say the kingdom is near? What was near actually was the literal physical kingdom was near because the king was there in the midst of his people. And so the question was, what, what is the kingdom? And, and the answer is that when Christ the King comes to reign from Israel on His glorious throne over the people of the whole earth, that is, that is what I understand the kingdom to be. The, that Christ the King, He's the ruler, He comes, He reigns from Israel on his glorious throne over the people of the whole earth, and that reign is kind of the fulfillment of all of the prophecies given through all of the Old and New Testament. Now, you can disagree with that, I I think, um, some people do, but, but you need to recognize regardless that this is a prayer for the consummation of the kingdom, for the, for really for God to bring in the end. We're to pray for the events recorded in Revelation 19, 20, and 21 to be fulfilled. We're, we're to pray for the events from Revelation 19, 20, 21, and 22. We're praying for those things to be fulfilled, for God to bring in the end. And that's exactly how the book of Revelation ends. Actually, in Revelation, I'll just read to you some verses from Revelation 22. Revelation 22, verse 7 says, "...and behold, I am coming." Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So, behold, I am coming. Revelation 22.10, and he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evil doers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy. Then the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done." I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. And verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. There's this, this call, come. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires the water to, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. then verse 18 says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus, now I wanted you to just see that all of these calls for coming at the end of the 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 book of Revelation, all of these calls that and and encouragements that I am coming soon. This is what we're praying for when we pray, "Your kingdom come." And so that answers what we are to pray for. And next, we need to think along the lines of why. Why should we pray this prayer, or how does? this prayer, glorify God. And as we think about it, I think we realize rather quickly that, that there are things in this world that God has allowed for His glory that do not in and of themselves glorify Him. And I think more and more in, in our day we can see this Uh, ever so clearly if you go on social media and you see the things that are happening in this world, you realize there are things in this world that do not in and of themselves glorify God. There is evil in this world. There are evildoers in this world. Like we just read, there are filthy people in this world. And in Revelation 22.15, which we just read, it says, outside are the dogs and sorcerers, and the sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. And so right now, God allows these people to breathe His air and to drink His water. He permits idolatry. He permits the worship of things other than Himself at this time. And we ourselves, we once lived in, in these kinds of sins, but in His mercy, God saved us from sin. And although we desire others to be saved from their sin too, we also recognize that God won't receive the glory that He's due until Christ returns. Until He comes and He separates the sheep from the goats, the righteous from the unrighteous, and establishes His kingdom. And so, until the kingdom comes, God will not receive the fullness of His glory. And so our prayer is, Your kingdom come. Our prayer is, Come, O Lord. Come, O Lord, and destroy your enemies and make your name great on the earth. Finish your work and bring in your everlasting kingdom in which only righteousness dwells. That's kind of our prayer as we ask God to bring his kingdom. And the Holy Spirit and the bride, the church of Christ, we say, come, Lord Jesus, come and bring in everlasting righteousness. Come and, and let your work and, and your plan be fulfilled on the earth. And so that is why we pray this prayer to glorify God, because we want God to be glorified. So we realize that His plan needs to be brought to fruition, his, his purpose to completion. And so we ask Him to bring His kingdom, let it come, because in that place, God will be fully glorified the way that He deserves. But now let's ask, how does this prayer benefit us? How does this prayer benefit us? Like I said at the beginning, God's glory and our good are inseparably linked. Because we are God's children and we function as His representative on earth, what glorifies God also benefits us. So what can we learn from this prayer? prayer, or, Or what should it do to us to pray such a prayer? And the first thing I want to say about that is that this request once again excludes the unsafe person from praying such a prayer for an unbeliever or for you as an unbeliever to pray this sincerely would mean to ask God to send Christ to judge you and condemn you into hell and so an unbeliever cannot pray this prayer to pray such a prayer would be to pray for their own condemnation for their own damnation And so this prayer must be the prayer of a redeemed sinner. Only a redeemed sinner is safe to pray, Lord, may your kingdom come, because only we are going to enter into that kingdom because we are already sons of that kingdom. But second, to pray such a prayer, it really sets our hope in heaven. You see, when we pray such a prayer, we realize that this world is not our hope and this world is not our home. This world will be sinful and imperfect and full of trouble until Christ returns and makes it right. And so as we pray this prayer, we recognize the, the sinful, imperfect nature of this world. And we recognize that this world and the, the way that things are is not our hope. It's not our home. It's not what we're longing for. We're longing for something future. We're longing for God to bring about His purposes on the earth. And so this prayer then helps us to be eternally focused. And in a sense, by praying your kingdom come, we're, we're asking God, get this, we're asking God to, to bring an end to all earthly joy. Right? You see that? When we pray your kingdom come, Lord, we're saying, Lord, I am thankful and glad for you to take away all my earthly joy and to bring in my heavenly joy and righteousness. And so we're asking God to bring an end to this present world system. And this becomes then a a great test for us. Are we content to see this world come to an end? And I want you to ask that of yourself. Are you content? Are you glad? Will you rejoice when the kingdom comes and all of your earthly joy is taken away and you enter into heavenly joy? In Revelation chapter 18, Babylon, the great city is destroyed and, and the Babylon there represents the world system of this present age. And when Babylon is destroyed, the whole world weeps to see her wealth brought to nothing in a moment. And so the world weeps and mourns in Revelation chapter 18. But then in verse 20, it says, rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. And so heaven and the saints are called to rejoice while the world weeps. And then in a series of, of hallelujahs rise to the Lord in response. And you should read Revelation 18. There's just hallelujah after hallelujah. For the, the believer, the, the destruction of the world is actually an answer to our prayers. And of course, in Revelation 19 is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to establish His kingdom. Revelation 20, the thousand-year reign of Christ. And so this is an answer to our prayers. We know that the world is passing away along with its desires. First John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so this prayer helps us to keep that command in perspective. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Instead, we pray, Lord, your kingdom come. That's where my love is. That's where my hope is. And third, this prayer, which is focused on the future, it, it prepares us for the next prayer, which is more focused on the present. You see, if we want God's will to be done in the future kingdom, and we're focused on that, we will also want His will to be done on earth, here and now. The more we think about that coming kingdom, the more aware we will be of how far this sinful world is from the one that is to come. How can we pray for that kingdom where God is forever praised and then not notice the wickedness and idolatry of this current world? And so let's look then at uh, at the second prayer. We pray, number one, your kingdom come. And now number two, pray for God's will to be done. Pray for God's will to be done. And we follow the same kind of format. First, let's ask about God's will. What are we asking for when we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Your will be done. What are we asking for? Well the will of God is very much connected to this idea of his kingdom. And actually there's a a sense in which there's a, a kingdom of God, there's a there's what what the what theologians might call the universal kingdom of God. You see God rules over all of creation. God is sovereign and his sovereignty and his will are connected together. God is, is sovereign and that means that he wills what happens and he is able to accomplish it. His, his will and his omnipotence kind of go hand in hand to, to, to cover this area that we would think of as the sovereignty of God. God's will and God's power work together and that is what we mean when we speak about his sovereignty. And so Psalm 103, verse 19 says this, just listen to this, Psalm 103, 19, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom rules over all. Yahweh rules over all. From His throne in heaven, He rules over all. And that word all there, that all means all. That's one of the times when all means all, when when it says that His kingdom rule, rules over all. And the word rules means the exercise of His rule, the, the exercise of His power. This throne isn't just a, a nice seat in heaven that, that Yahweh sits on. Yahweh is in control of heaven and earth. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. And he even rules over the sinful choices of men. He controls all things, but he does so without being the author of sin. Lamentations 318, or three, sorry 3.37 says, "...who has spoken, and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come?" Ecclesiastes seven thirteen says, "Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked?" Then it says, "In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other." And Isaiah forty five verse seven, the Lord Himself speaking here, He says, "I form light and create darkness; I make well being and create calamity." I am the Lord who does all these things. And so we see from texts like this that both good and bad, both both uh, the day of joy and the day of adversity, and even light and darkness, even well-being and calamity, all of these things are made and in control by our great God. This control over all, over light and darkness, good and evil, joy and adversity, good and bad, is an exercise of God's will. Now God's will in Scripture is, is kind of variously described. It's called His will, or His purpose, His good pleasure, His decree, His will, His the mystery of His will, the purpose of His will, the counsel of His will, or simply sometimes His counsel. Sometimes it's whatever the Lord pleases speaks about His will. Whatever the Lord pleases, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place, Acts 4.27. His plan is another name for His will, which which kind of leads us to the theological term, the decree of God. This is His plan for the universe. God's decree is simply His plan, which is the, the plan that He willed before the foundation of the world. And in this sense then, whatever happens in time is actually God's will. If God did not will it, it would not happen. Just think about that. If God did not will it, it would not happen. Everything that is, is because God wills it. And I, and I just need to go now, let's go to some Scriptures and I, I, wanna, I want you to see this, that God is sovereign over all and that this is connected with His will. Go to Revelation 4. And let's look at Revelation 4, verse 11. Revelation 4, 11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. And here's the reason. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created." God created all things, and they existed by His will. If God ceased to will anything, it would cease to exist. Let's go to Psalm 115 now. Let's look at Psalm 115 and verse 3. Psalm one fifteen and verse three says, Our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. He is in the heavens, that's kind of that's where his throne is, and from there he does all that he pleases. Now let's look at a very similar verse in Psalm one hundred thirty five, verse Psalm one thirty five, verse six. Even Let's start in verse 5. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our God is above all gods. Note the small g in that. The Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. And notice where He does this. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. And then the, the psalmist goes on to kind of explain that and celebrate that fact. But whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth and in the seas and all deeps. Job 42 verse 2, Job says to the Lord, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. If God pleases, He does it, whatever it is, and everywhere or wherever it is, and no one can thwart him. If he pleases, he does it. Doesn't matter where it is. Doesn't matter when it is or whatever it is. Everywhere it is, no one can thwart him in his purposes. As Isaiah 14 verse 27 says, for the Lord of hosts has purposed and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out and who will turn it back? Or Isaiah 46, verse 9 says, "'Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like Me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all My purpose.'" My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all My purpose.'" You see, the Godness of God is tied to this, that He knows the end from the beginning. And why does He know the end from the beginning? And the answer is it's because He purposed it. And what He purposed, what He wills, He will accomplish. Again, my counsel, my decision, my, we could say it, my will shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. And we see the same thing in the New Testament. Turn to uh, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1 and verse 11. It says, in him, I'll let you get there for a minute. in Him, that is in the Lord Jesus Christ there, in Him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Now you can't get around that verse. And this verse actually could be viewed as even stronger than all the rest because the context of Isaiah chapter one is actually the context of salvation. We have obtained an inheritance because of our salvation. We were predestined not according to simple foreknowledge, as though God decides what he's going to do based on what he foresees happening. No, we've been predestined according to the purpose of the one who works all things according to his will. And note again that word there, all things. The Lord rules over all, we started there, and He works all things according to the counsel of His will. Nothing happens outside of God's will. And if you just think about it, even just logically, could God stop anything that happens? Or could God make something other than what happens happen? And the answer is, of course He could. Does he know what is happening, or does he know what will happen? And again, the answer is, of course he knows what is happening and what will happen. And of course he could stop it, or of course he could make something else happen. And so therefore, whatever happens must be in some sense his will. He must have at least permitted it to happen. And in fact, those verses that we read, like Isaiah 45 says even stronger, he made it happen. He is the ultimate cause of all things, now as we kind of understand this aspect of God's will—that that that everything that happens in this world is according to His will—we still recognize, and there might be a little bit of a, a struggle coming up in your mind, because we recognize that God is holy, and there's got to be a sense in which He doesn't will sin. And so, to retain God's holiness, we need to acknowledge that God never will sin for sin itself nor does he force or compel anyone to sin. God doesn't make anybody sin. But God, and this is just a really amazing thing about God, God can will sin for good and make it happen without sinning in a way that we cannot fully understand. God can will sin for good and he can make it happen without himself sinning In in a way that we cannot fully understand, as Joseph said in Isaiah, or in Genesis 50 verse 20, he says to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so there's a sense in which God can, can, can mean, can will an evil action But He doesn't will it for the evil itself. He wills it for the good and He stays pure even as He ordains all things whatsoever come to pass. Now I said all of that to say this. When we pray, your will be done. We're not actually praying for God's will to be done in the sense that we just talked about. We're not praying for God's decree to be done because God's decree is already going to be done no matter what we pray and even as I say that I recognize that there's a sense in which our prayers from the human perspective do change things when when God answers our prayer but even the answer to our prayers is all part of God's decree and God's will and so when we pray, your will be done, we're, we're not praying for God's decree to be done. Other, otherwise, what we would be praying is, may what is going to happen, happen. And that doesn't make sense, right? We, we don't pray, may what is going to happen, happen. That would be a, a useless prayer. And, and I actually got that quote from Wayne Grudem, Systematic Theology. But uh, go, let's go and turn then, as you think about this, go to Deuteronomy 29 and verse 9. I hope it's encouraging for you to kind of recognize and think about the, the powerful will of God and His sovereignty over the world. Deuteronomy 20.29 20, kind of helps us to understand God's decree and, and His revealed will. God's decree in, in Revelation 29.29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. So we've got the secret things. They belong to the Lord. That's speaking about God's decree. That's a, a largely secret thing. He is, he's revealed some future things to us, but for the, for the most part, we don't understand His decree. We don't understand what is going to happen or when it's going to happen. And so that is a secret thing. And we're not to try to pry into God's secrets, but at the same time, we recognize according to this verse that there are some things that He has revealed to us. God has given us commands. He has given us Promises, admonitions, warnings, encouragements, etc. Things like that. And and these things have been revealed to us and they're revealed so that we may do all of this law. God has revealed to us what He would have us do. That is part of God's will. That is a, a, another aspect, we could call it, of His will that He has revealed to us what He would have us do, and He's revealed that in His commands, promises, warnings, admonitions, encouragements, and those kind of things. Herman Bavink said this, quote, There's a big difference between the will of God that prescribes what we must do and the will of God that tells us what He does and will do. And so there's this difference between the secret and the things revealed. But when we pray, your will be done, we're asking for, what we're asking for is for God's commandments to be obeyed. We're asking that his warnings would be heeded, that his promises would be longed for and that his promises would be believed. And we ask that first of all, then for our own lives. And then we ask it for the world. Again we're praying then when we pray your will be done we're praying along the lines of Romans 12:2 we're praying for the, the good and acceptable and perfect will of God to be done, and we're asking that it be done on earth as it is in heaven and so as we think about that then well, let's think about how are God's commandments and warnings and promises and and, and his will, if we want to say it that way, how is God's will done in heaven? Well, it's done immediately. It's done perfectly. It's done thankfully. God's will in heaven is done joyfully. It's not done grudgingly. It's not done complainingly. It's not done half-heartedly. It's done fully, completely, perfectly, joyfully, thankfully, because in heaven there is no sin. And in heaven, there is no resistance. And in heaven, there is no hostility towards the revealed will of God. And so we pray that God's will, that God's commandments would be ba- obeyed on earth. And of course, to pray this glorifies God because, because for His good, perfect, and pleasing will to be done shows His greatness and His perfection in this world. And the more the world is aligned to God's will, the more Christ-like it will be, and that means that God will be more glorified. And so we recognize that ultimately God will be glorified regardless of what happens, but still our prayer is to be for God's revealed will to be done on earth now. And this means that we're to pray, for example, for the fulfillment of the Great Commission, We're to pray for really all of these things that God has revealed that his will, all of the things that God has expressed a desire to see in the earth, for the great commission to be fulfilled, for the word of God to spread through the world. We're to pray for people to be saved. God has revealed his desire for all people to repent and we're to pray that they would repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and that they would hear the gospel through faithful missionaries and preachers and people. We're to pray for, for those who are saved, that they would live holy, righteous, and Christ-like lives. We're to pray for the sanctification of the church. We're to pray for government leaders, that we would be able to live peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. You get the idea. We're, we're to say, your will be done. And this prayer will benefit us because praying this sincerely will mean a conforming of our wills to God's will. You know, if, you know, think about the sincerity of this prayer. It's hard to pray your will be done and then go and do something totally contrary to it. At least that would be hypocrisy, whereas we're to pray sincerely. We can't pray your will be done and then go out and commit sin. And so you see what this requires? This prayer requires a commitment In our own hearts to do God's will, a commitment to obey him, a commitment to serve him with our whole lives. And implicit in this request is is a request that we be transformed. Philippians 2 and verse 13 says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so we are Praying as we pray for God's will to be done, we are looking for Him to transform our wills so that, that we will and do according to His good pleasure. Another way to say His will. Our will being conformed to God's will. To pray this means that I'm going to do His will and that I'm going to help other people to do His will. It means God's will for my life becomes my will. Do right? you see that? That's what I'm praying. I'm, I'm praying that, that my will would be conformed, that that God's will for my life would also be my will. It means then that we pray like our Lord in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. You see, we don't pray trying to get what we want from God. We pray so that we would be conformed and that His will would be done on earth and not ours. Now friends, if you're listening to this, we have seen two requests for God's glory and for our good. We're to pray for His kingdom to come. We're to pray for God's kingdom to come and for God's will to be done. And so let me ask you, can you pray this prayer without calling for your own damnation? If you're here today and you're listening to my voice and you're not in Christ, to pray this prayer would be to pray for your own damnation. When the kingdom comes, will you be cast into the lake of fire? And have you obeyed God's will in believing Jesus Christ unto salvation? And if you haven't and if you aren't in Christ, you need to repent and believe so that you can pray this prayer without heaping up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. And if you have believed on Christ, I hope that this has helped you to see what we're we're to pray for and how it glorifies God and how such a prayer to pray your kingdom come and your will be done should change you. Now there's just, there's so much more that we could say about this passage. There's just so much in this very little section, your kingdom come, your will be done but this is our prayer, this prayer that God would bring in the end and that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time in your word. Pray, Father, that you would help us to understand these things in a greater way. Your, your kingdom is a, a deep theological concept that runs through all of Scripture and your will and how it works is another deep and amazingly infinite thing. When we think about your revealed will and your secret will, your decree, and what you command us to do, Father, these things are exceedingly deep. And even to think about how you answer prayer and yet still do what you've always planned for the, from the beginning of the world, it, it really overwhelms our minds. But we pray, Father, that, that your will would be done. We want to see Your desires be accomplished in the earth. And so we pray, Father, that You would glorify Yourself by letting Your will be done in our lives and then in the lives of this world. And we pray, Father, as we are taught to pray in this passage and even in Revelation 22, we pray that You would come. We pray that Your kingdom would come, that You would end this world and rid sin and glorify Yourself.